Laws are like spider webs. They catch the weak and the poor, but the rich can tear right through them. A quote from Anacharsis, a friend of Solon, the Athenian lawgiver. And now we come to the great jewel of our Western traditions, the city of Athens. Here would be conceived the beginning of Western culture and science, philosophy, literature, religion, art, and not just in one explosive genesis, but again and again, these eruptions of brilliance would punctuate the story of this city and of the vigorous, cunning people who inhabited it for centuries. Hi, my name is Rob Paxton, and this is my podcast. The Western Traditions podcast tells the story of Western history from the beginning of the universe itself until our present day. This is another episode in the second series of podcasts called The Greek Sun, out of a total of eight planned series. If you want to start at the very beginning, I recommend that you go to my website, western-traditions.org, that's western-traditions.org, and check out the 25 episodes of the first series about the ancient world. While you're there, feel free to check out the maps and pictures and the recommended books to read. If you like what you hear, please consider contributing to the podcast through the Patreon or PayPal options offered on the site. Now, if you are listening on Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, or elsewhere, please remember to like, subscribe, follow, and or share with friends. And with those plugs out of the way, let's get on with it. As we did with Sparta, let's begin with the geography. Even a brief look at a map of the area reveals that Greece is a peninsula made of peninsulas. Technically an extension of the Balkan Peninsula at its southern extreme, mainland Greece consists of multiple smaller peninsulas, often curiously shaped, that extend away from the primary peninsula, all of them jutting out into Homer's wine-dark sea. I have already briefly discussed the Peloponnese Peninsula, where lies Sparta. I will return to it again. For this episode, however, we look a little east of Sparta, to the peninsula of Attica. That's A-T-T-I-C-A, Attica. The name Attica probably comes from the Greek word Aktike, which means coastland, and Attica is a peninsula with a lengthy coastline. Home to many great bays and harbors, excellent for launching and receiving trading ships. Here sits Athens, the cradle and the grave of ancient Western culture. It is a much smaller area than the Peloponnesus. Attica contains just about 3,000 square kilometers compared to the 21,000 square kilometers of the Peloponnesus. But then Sparta did not control the entire Peloponnese territory. Nevertheless, Athens had a lot less to work with in terms of territory, and not just with regard to pure size. The soil of Attica, the land around Athens, was not good, Dry and rocky, the soil was not generous to the Athenians, but this inadequacy of the soil had its benefits too. It meant that there was less to fight over. Here's a quote about the land from Thucydides, that's spelled T-H-U-C-Y-D-I-D-E-S, Thucydides, who fought in and chronicled the great war between Sparta and Athens at the end of the 5th century BC. Quote, Attica, due to the poverty of its soil, enjoyed from the distant past freedom from political factions and never changed its rulers, unquote. 
He speaks of the distant past, of course. We will soon be discussing in this episode a period in which Athens, just like any other better situated city, did indeed suffer the chaos of infighting and rivalry, which would really come to characterize Greek political life. But the soil was good for the olive tree, for figs, and for grapes, if not very good for important and necessary staples like wheat. So Athens would always have need to create surpluses of what it could grow, so that it might trade for the things that it needed. Who worked this difficult land, and who launched the ships from the peninsula's numerous bays, harbors, and inlets that would carry away its surpluses and seek and risk and reward on the ocean waves to bring back the necessities of life? It was no pure race, no carefully preserved genetic stock like that of the Spartans. The people of Attica were Ionian-speaking Greeks, sure, but their stock was composed of an eclectic mixture of an ancient population of old Mycenaeans and refugees from Boeotia and from the Peloponnesus, who may have fled the semi-legendary Dorian invasion of those areas following the Bronze Age collapse centuries earlier. Sometime during that dark age, this genetic melting pot congealed into four tribes, each tribe possessing numerous subdivisions of clans and large family groups, each of which had its own traditions, gods, and rituals. Eventually, though, according to tradition, all the villages and clans of Attica were brought into one political organization centered in the very city of Athens, such that all the people of that peninsula were essentially Athenians, even if they did not live in the city proper. The man responsible for this political reorganization was a well-remembered hero named Theseus. Theseus is the perfect introductory material for Athens, not only because he was associated with its origins in legend, but also because in the myths about his life, he displays wisdom, physical strength, and a self-serving cunning that would exemplify traits valuable to Athenians and really to all ancient Greeks. If you listen to the episode on Crete in the last episode in the last series, you have already heard a little bit about Theseus. He was the Athenian hero that dared the Minotaur's labyrinth and escaped with Ariadne. Thus, one could technically argue that he is a pre-Greek figure from the Mycenaean age or before when Crete was regionally supreme. Theseus also knew Heracles, per the myth, and his sons were among the Greek soldiers hidden in the Trojan horse that led to the downfall of Troy. So he would seem to be placed chronologically in the period prior to the Bronze Age collapse. Certainly, we know that Athens itself predates this collapse. It was a Mycenaean town, and the famous Acropolis of Athens also dates back to this era. It's a sturdy stone fortress that overlooked the town and which would retain strategic importance nearly down into our own age. Now, Theseus was not the founder of Athens, nor was he ever reputed to be, but he was regarded by its natives during the classical age as the one responsible for its formation into a strong, independent city-state, and not just another collection of villages. His story is no longer told to schoolchildren regularly, but some aspects of his tale may ring a bell for listeners. Theseus was descended from two great bloodlines in Greek history. On the paternal side, his ancestor was Erechtheus, ruler of the earliest peoples of Attica. On the maternal side, his ancestor was Pelops, who gave his name to the Peloponnesian Peninsula. 
His maternal grandfather was Pythias, remembered as a wise ruler over the town of Trozen in Argos. That's that portion of the Peloponnesus to the east of Sparta. A young man of noble blood passed through this territory. His name was Aegeus, and he was the son of the king of Athens. Now Pythias arranged for this stranger to sleep with his daughter in one of those curiously Greek plot twists. Anyway, Aegeus, suspecting correctly that he had impregnated the young woman, left her with a sword and a pair of sandals. He hid them beneath a rock and told the girl to have the boy retrieve them when he reached manhood and come find his father in the city of Athens. According to an alternate version of the story, Poseidon was actually the father of the child, but there are always these variants in Greek myth. There are also multiple possibilities with regards to the meaning of Theseus's name as well. It may come from the Greek word for put, thus referencing the things put under the stone. There's also an ancient Greek word for acknowledge that is similar to his name, possibly referencing that Theseus was acknowledged upon arrival in Athens. There are other possibilities as well. Now, the road to Athens through the Isthmus of Corinth was at that time a most treacherous route. Theseus's grandfather, understanding the boy's desire to seek out his father and seek his place in the world, encouraged the young man to take the comparatively shorter and safer route to Athens by crossing the sea across the Saronic Gulf. But Theseus had grown up with the stories of Heracles in his young years. That hero was still active in the world during Theseus's life, and his fame had spread wide. One of that muscle man's famous deeds had been to clear the land route from the Peloponnesus to Athens, wiping out the thieves and bandits and monsters that had imperiled travelers. Theseus, aspiring to equal such deeds, decided to take the land route and once again clear the path of trouble. Now, the adventures of Theseus would be enough for an entire episode. I encourage listeners to read Plutarch's essay on this legendary man for more details, but I will skip to his arrival in Athens. When he reached that city, he found it to be in political turmoil, with various factions struggling for dominance under the rule of an aged king, Theseus' own father, Aegeus. This urban upset will become a familiar scenario in Athens as we progress through its history. To further complicate matters, another famous character from Greek myth, Medea, the sorceress, had come to live in the city. She was the witchy woman brought back from her home on the Black Sea by Jason after his journey with the Argonauts to find the Golden Fleece. She had initially lived with Jason and experienced her own grand drama and tragedy before coming to Athens. Medea tried to get Theseus to poison the king at a feast, but father and son recognized each other and were reunited. Plutarch does not tell us more about Medea here, but we will learn more about her in a future episode. Theseus's fame grew. Like Heracles, he gained renown for his mighty deeds, both in strength and in cunning. He defeated the fearsome bull of Marathon and brought it back alive for a sacrifice. Later, he traveled as a willing prisoner to Crete, where he defeated the Minotaur in his labyrinth and escaped with Ariadne, the daughter of King Minos. More notable for our purposes here, though, is the fact that it is Theseus who is remembered for bringing all of the villages of Attica into political unification with Athens. Thus, from here on out, when I speak of Athenians, I speak of the whole people of the peninsula, as they remain unified in governmental terms throughout the history I will relate. The people may divide into political factions, but the territory of Attica itself is never divided among them. Athens and Attica are one, thanks to Theseus. Like many an Athenian statesman, 
Theseus eventually fell into political disfavor, and he was run out of the city. He sailed to the island of Skyros in the Aegean Sea, where, according to one version of the story, the ruler of that island pushed him off a cliff, and he fell to his death. Nevertheless, he was remembered fondly in Athens in religious observations for century afterward. He would reappear, too. When the Athenians stood alone facing the immensity of the Persian forces at the Battle of Marathon in 490 BC, it is told that the soldiers saw an apparition of Theseus at the head of their army, rushing at the enemy. Athens was not truly a port city. The urban center of the city was actually a few kilometers from the seashore. But from time immemorial, Athens controlled the Piraeus, that's P-I-R-A-E-U-S, the Piraeus, a smaller town on the coast. And through the centuries, it had launched its many vessels and sailors from this vantage. So vital was possession of the Piraeus that in the period after the Persian War, the city leaders commissioned the building of two great long walls that would create an open air passage several kilometers long, reaching all the way from Athens to this village, walls which they would man and defend with fervor because losing this link to the sea meant certain doom in time of war for a city that could not reliably produce its own bread. In the deep past, like all city-states emerging from the darkness of prehistory, Athens was ruled by a king. The last true king of Athens was named Codrus, it's C-O-D-R-U-S, Codrus. After his death, the Athenians decided to begin electing leaders, and they called them archons, A-R-C-O-N-S, archons. These archons ruled for life, like a king, but upon their death, the choice of the next leader for life returned to the people. Now, I should explain something about that term, people. In our modern democracies, we tend to think of the people as the entire number of people living in a nation. The vast majority of the people living in any democracy today are its citizens, and they each have the right to vote, to have a trial jury when accused of a crime, and so on. That is not what we mean by the term people when we speak about ancient city-states like Athens or Rome, even though they were types of democracies. At one late point during the evolution of Athens, citizenship will be granted much more liberally, but for the time being, the term people refers to a very limited number of individuals. Recall the last episode on Sparta. The quote-unquote actual Spartans were very few compared to the slaves and the non-Spartan freemen living among them. Now there's a similar dichotomy in the population of Athens. People only refers to male landholders. This is actually what people means even in the American Constitution upon its writing thousands of years later. It was only in the years after the U.S. Constitution was adopted that most states changed their definition of people to mean all adult free men residing in their vicinities. In fact, in the earliest days before Solon the lawgiver, to whom I will come momentarily, The real people of Athens, the one who made decisions, were known as the Eupatrids. That's E-U-P-A-T-R-I-D-S, Eupatrids. The term literally translates as something like from good fathers or basically the well-born. These are the nobility of Athens. Until Solon came and put a constitution in place, the whole people of Athens were divided into three or four classes, depending on exactly which juncture of history you're examining. 
At the top were the Eupatrids, of course. They owned land and horses and fought as cavalry in wartime. They were the only ones eligible to hold high state office, such as Archon. Beneath them, in rank, though they often had citizenship as well, were small-scale landowners, farmers typically, who were wealthy enough to possess armor and heavy arms, such as swords and spears. They fought as hoplite infantry. They were eligible to vote and to hold the lesser offices of the state. They could be judges or priests, for example, but they could not be archons. Finally, there was the lowest class, laborers and craftsmen. During times of war, these were able to arm themselves with light weapons, typically, such as slings, javelins, and daggers, and so on. And they fought as the mobile light infantry of the Athenian army. These men of the lowest class were not deemed citizens, and they were neither eligible to vote nor to hold any office. Note how the classes are distinguished not simply according to their economic and political status, but also, perhaps more importantly, by their military role. These Greek city-states were seemingly always at war with a neighbor. Anyway, the various landholders of Athens, and all of Attica, therefore, elected archons to rule over them. But this archon was not a tyrant. He had to respect the will of the people who elected him, and his primary job was to uphold the existing traditions and customs. Sometime in the 8th century BC, the archon was given a term limit of 10 years. A century later, the people divided the position into nine parts, electing nine new archons every year. Responsibilities for the state were divided among the nine, some having judicial, military, or legislative rules. In a nod to the ancient kingship, one archon was known as the Archon Basilius, or King Archon, but this was merely a title and did not reflect monarchical power. Now, it is easy and common for students of Greek history to see this evolution of public office as evidence of a slow transition to democracy. However, this is really a misperception of the perennial political struggle. People today often tend to see an eternal struggle between popular democracy and absolute monarchy. However, the real struggle was always three-sided, between the rule of one, the rule of many, or the rule of all. In other words, the development of the office of Archon into nine separate parts really represents the temporary victory of feudal aristocracy, not a step toward democracy. The wealthy landed men were taking back their control of state matters, which they had lost in some distant past before the rise of the kings. They had no long-term plans to hand over power or influence to the rabble. Now, the Archons were not typically chosen, though, by any sort of a popular vote. After serving as an archon, a man graduated to become a permanent member of a council that met and was called the Areopagus. This name would continue to be attached to the highest office of government in one way or another and refers to a rocky hill area that sits amid Athens and was likely where these leaders met. This body of men acted much as the Senate did for the Romans. It elected men to high office and oversaw all important decisions made by the archons. Now, at this point in our study, we have reached the 7th century BC in Greece. Over in Mesopotamia, the Neo-Babylonian Empire rules with an iron fist. And in Egypt, pharaohs of the late period dynasties, the 25th and the 26th dynasty, still wear the double crown. Greece, though, is still a backwater, culturally, economically, and politically, in terms of the world scene. But there is wealth here. There was money changing hands at the Piraeus, the port, where Athens exchanges goods with the rest of the world, and that wealth has slowly started to accumulate in the hands of the Eupatrids, 
the high-class citizens of Athens, and the merchants of the towns are also profiting from this trade, and through debt, they are slowly turning the urban laboring class into slaves, because enslavement is one legal option the wealthy have when their debtors cannot pay what they owe. The lower classes, though, are not taking this lying down. By 620 BC, Athens is on the verge of civil war. The classes are all ready to turn on one another, and those at the very bottom are ready to murder the rich and burn their dwellings. The Archons decided to appoint a lawgiver, a man who might bring order to the increasingly chaotic social and political scene in Athens. They chose a man named Draco. We know very little about Draco, just his name, really, and that he was one of the Archons, or of their social and political class anyway. He imposed a code of law on Athens that is not remembered in much detail because it was superseded in the next generation by an entirely new constitution. What we do remember of Draco is that his laws punish trivial offenses just as severely as heinous crimes. Few examples of such outrageous punishment are given, but Plutarch remarks that, under Draco's code, stealing cabbage was punished as severely as homicide. And we can presume that homicide was punished with death, so yeah, that seems a little overboard. This is why we have the term draconian punishment, to characterize a legal or other consequence that seems drastically out of proportion to the offense. Now, as you can imagine, this did not resolve the social and political problems bubbling up in the cauldron of sedition, sedition that was Athens at this time. In 594 BC, then, the Archons once again decided that they needed to take a drastic step to quell the growing unrest among the city populace. They chose another man of their ranks to try to rescue the city from self-destruction. And so now, we have come to the appearance of the great Athenian lawgiver, Solon. He was in or approaching middle age when first called to the office of Archon. The exact timeline of his administration and reform is unclear. He may have come into office in 594 with just some idea of reform and may have gained backing as time went on, but as his Greek biographers, Plutarch among them, as they tell the tale, his story is a little more messianic. Let's start with why they would trust Solon to reform and rehabilitate the entire Athenian state and government in the first place. Now, to be clear, the man did not usurp power and take over. The leaders and the people of the city appointed him, asked him, to make drastic changes to save them from civil war. The poor wanted to be rescued from slavery, debt, and the grind of poverty. The wealthy saw the writing on the wall and knew that however much they despised the poor, the masses were going to come for their mansions with pitchforks and torches one of these days. And the middle classes in between them, the merchants and the smaller landholders, they just wanted an orderly environment so they could prosper. So why did they trust Solon? He came from the upper classes. He was a eupatrid. His father, a generous but feckless man, had squandered the family fortune. According to Plutarch, he had thoughtlessly bestowed gifts and financial favors on friends and acquaintances until he imperiled his family's financial standing. So Solon, his patrimony in jeopardy, discovered initiative as a young man. He's remembered both for his poetic verses, which gained some fame for him, as well as for his business acumen. He became a merchant and traveled overseas quite a bit. Most famously, he spent time in Egypt, and there, according to Plato several generations later, Solon learned the story of Atlantis from the Egyptian priests. 
He was respected for his business success, but also, more importantly, perhaps, for his integrity. And that respect came from all the political and economic classes of society in Athens, from the poor to the rich. The archons appointed him with supreme power of legislation because of this. They knew that he, better than anyone, would be able to convince all Athenians to attempt a legal, peaceful resolution of their problems. But probably no one expected what he would accomplish. Aristotle reports that Solon's first move was to forgive all existing debts, whether they were to the state or to persons. This may sound drastic and like something that the wealthy would never agree to, but this was apparently a middle road that the rich were willing, however grudgingly, to walk, because there was a powerful faction in the city that wanted to seize all land and redistribute it evenly among the general populace. Recall from the last episode that this had already been done in Sparta. The likelihood of such an event was definitely non-trivial. Solon, though, was just getting started. He freed all political prisoners, those who had been incarcerated for having the wrong opinion. He also canceled banishments of exiles based on similar reasons. Only those who had actually called to overthrow the state remained punished. He then laid out a new constitution, which, among other things, declared that all laws now applied to all men, all free men anyway, all citizens. Slavery continued under the reform. You see, Prior to this reform, laws had applied differently to men of different classes. We will see this again and again in barbarian and medieval Europe in which a man might be punished more severe, more severely based on what kind of man he offended. Hitting a duke or a count was much different than just smacking another peasant. In other words, you were punished more severely for the same crime committed against a man of higher class than you would if you did it to a poor man. Thanks to Solon, there was now an equal application of legal punishment across the spectrum of all classes. And about those classes, Solon reconfigured the populace once more, one more time into four clearly categorized and constitutionally recognized classes according to their wealth. Members of the highest class, which we can presume was at least a portion of the old eupatriot class, they were still the only ones el eligible to hold high office and high military command, but they were also taxed at a higher rate in exchange for that privilege. The second highest class was known as the hippes, the, that's H-I-P-P-E-S, hippes, or horsemen. Hippes had previously been the name of the highest class of men in an earlier stage of Athens' develop development and applying loosely to that entire upper class of eupatriots. Now it signified men of just sufficient wealth to own a horse and fight his cavalry, and they were allowed to run the lesser political offices and the military commands. They also paid lower taxes than the highest class. The third class of men, many small landholders and merchants, was wealthy enough to buy their own armor and supply themselves with heavy weapons, such as swords and spears. These were the hoplite warriors of Athens. They paid the least in taxes. Finally, there were the thetes, that's T-H-E-T-E-S, thetes, or the masses, basically. This class of men was not taxed at all, but they were expected to provide light infantry in times of war. These men were craftsmen, laborers, certain professionals, etc. Below all these were the slaves, of course. There was no emancipation under Solon. Slaves were still slaves. Now, the Senate, the Areopagus, was still politically supreme. The membership of that body was now slightly more open than it had been in the past. All members of the uppermost class were now eligible to it, as they were to all high offices of the state. But beneath that legislative body was another newly devised Council of 400. 
Each of the four ancient tribes elected 100 members to this body. This council presented its ideas and decisions to the assembly, an even larger political body whose offices were open to citizens of any class. Now, this lower assembly did not present or suggest bills or laws as we might think of them, but this body did choose judges and jurors for the entire state. And this might have been the real democratic revolution here because the interpretation of the laws though they may have been crafted by the high class, the interpretation was left to these judges appointed by the popular assembly. With this constitution, Solon also instated a number of new laws. I won't bog down in any more detail about them, except to note that he actually really kept many of the punishments of Draco, even if not the most extreme ones. I should note on the positive side that he mandated that the state was to pay for the education and upbringing of all children whose fathers died in war, an excellent encouragement to future citizens to defend their country with all their might. Solon's constitution is the first one in history that did not claim or invoke divine inspiration. There are no assurances of the blessings of Zeus for obeying its precepts or curses for violating them. It is truly the first secular constitution. Now, we might see a sign of success in Solon's constitution in that ultimately no one really liked it. Conservatives, as we might style them today, did not like that he brought the rabble into the government at any level. And radicals criticized him for not knocking the aristocrats off their pedestals and taking away their land. Solon had to have a strong stomach for this work, knowing that few, if any of his contemporaries, would really appreciate what he had done. Even a good friend of his, Anacharsis, a philosopher from Scythia, a land north of the Black Sea, this Anacharsis had only this to say about the laws in general, which I quoted at the beginning of the podcast. Laws are like spider webs. They catch the poor and the weak, but the rich and the strong tear right through them. Nevertheless, Solon's legal and political framework endured for at least 500 years. Cicero, the Roman writer, philosopher, and statesman, while visiting Greece in the first century BC, observed this constitution still in service, though the Romans had long before taken over the territory of Greece. And what did Athens gain from this in the long term? Stability, for one. Though the ship of state would frequently and soon be rocked by political turmoil, the constitution would always emerge from these troubles more or less intact. Athens also gained a self-interested citizenry. When the Persians menaced Athens in the 5th century BC, by then, the peasants all owned their small patches of land, and when they put on their armor and clutched their long-shafted spears in one hand and their sturdy shields in the other, they did so as full citizens of the state, eager to defend the land that they might lose to an invader. Slaves and landless serfs have nothing to lose in a change of regimes, the peasant citizenry of Athens was motivated to fight. Solon bound the new government through an oath to retain his reforms without any change for 10 years in order to give it a thorough test. Then, in 572 BC, at the age of 66, Solon left Athens and took what you might call a retirement cruise. He traveled to Egypt, Cyprus, and then to Lydia. Now, Lydia was an expanding realm in western Anatolia under the leadership of its king, Croesus. You may remember the name of this kingdom and the king from the last episode of my first series of podcasts on the history of the ancient world. 
There is a good story about the meeting between Croesus and Solon, and then later the meeting between Croesus and Cyrus, the king of Persia. According to the story, when Solon was passing through Lydia, King Croesus invited him to his court. Croesus insisted on showing him all of the riches of his palace, and the fine clothing of his nobles, and the ostentation of his furniture, and all his many luxuries. And finally, Croesus asked Solon if he had ever known a man happier than himself. Unexpectedly, Solon says, yes, he has known a man happier than the king. And then he tells of a man who had good children, a decent estate or standard of living, and finally this man died in battle bravely defending his country. Pressed by Croesus to tell him then if there were any other men so happy, Solon had another ready example of two brothers who loved each other dearly, were good sons to their mother, and died in their sleep after a sacrifice and a feast. Croesus was upset because he thought riches made a man happy, but Solon explained that you could not judge a man's happiness while he was still living, because there was no telling what might come in his future, and that his happiness was best judged by his situation at the time of his death. Croesus dismissed Solon from his court, thinking him a fool. Later in his reign, Croesus was captured in battle by Cyrus the Great, the founder of the Persian Empire, who conquered Lydia in 546 BC. Cyrus encaged the conquered king and intended to burn Croesus publicly, but when he heard Croesus cry aloud Solon's name, he became curious and asked about this name, and so Croesus explained to his conqueror what Solon had told him about judging the quality and happiness of a man's life before he became, came to his end. Cyrus, a famous admirer of wisdom, upon hearing this tale, freed Croesus and kept him as a member of his court thereafter. Now that digression aside, while the cat is away, the mice will play, and that is what happened in Athens after Solon left. The constitution remained, but so did the factions and parties whose rivalries had made it necessary in the first place. Now, up to now I have described various classes and tribes and clans in Athens. By the 6th century BC, the Athenian political maelstrom had congealed into what we would call three political parties. There was, first of all, the party known as the Shore. These were the merchants who lived in the city and at the port. They were largely pro-Solon and supported his reforms. Then there was the party known as the Plain. These were the rich, landowning aristocrats from the interior. They generally hated Solon and wished for a return to the feudal aristocracy of the past. And finally, there was the Mountain or the Hill Party, a political party that combined the peasant farmers and laborers from the town and various other individuals. These were the most radical. These were the ones most likely to want to seize all the land and redistribute it. These parties did keep the constitution while Solon was away, and it was intact 10 years after when he returned, but no political peace had really been achieved. Now, a cousin of Solon's by the name of Pisistratus, and there's various spellings to that name. In my text, I'm writing it as P-I-S-I-S-T-R-A-T-U-S, Pisistratus. He was elected to lead the popular assembly. He was an aristocrat, but he had gained the confidence of people from all classes in Athens. But the gatherings of the popular assembly were raucous, chaotic affairs at times, as were the outside lives of its members at home and in the street. One day, Pisistratus arrived at the assembly and showed off a wound. History does not specify what kind of wound, but he claimed that he had just fought off an attack by political enemies. He asked the assembly for a bodyguard of 50 men. It is reported that Solon, back from his trip, publicly recognized this as a ruse and warned the people not to fall for it, but they did, 
and the assembly granted his request to hire 50 bodyguards. Pisistratus left the assembly and hired 450 bodyguards, and then he seized the Acropolis and declared himself dictator. Shortly thereafter, the shore and the plain parties reconciled, and they ran Pisistratus out of town. But the political machinations continued, and Pisistratus formed a new alliance with the merchants. He re-entered the city and began a second tyranny over Athens. He was forced out a second time. Then, perhaps around 546 BC, he returned with a military force, took over Athens for a third time, and remained in power for nearly 20 years. Oddly, though, this chapter in the political history of Athens actually strengthened the democracy. It strengthened the constitution because Pisistratus left it in place. After all, Solon's constitution provided a sturdy framework for government. It already functioned. All Pisistratus did was place himself at the head of that government. The councils and the assemblies continued to meet and to pass laws. The only difference was that now they favored Pisistratus's opinions when he had them. Otherwise, government continued as usual. In hindsight, Pisistratus was largely a good thing for Athens. He is remembered for a number of things. He strengthened the military on land and at sea, yet he refrained from war during his reign. To satisfy the radicals, he seized the land of already banished aristocrats and the rest of the land already owned by the government, and he divvied this land out to the poor, though he left untouched the land presently held by unexiled aristocrats. He recruited the unemployed to help him build large-scale public works, such as roads, temples, and aqueducts. Pisistratus continued the expansion of mining, mining work at Lorium on the coast in southern Attica, where Athens extracted silver from the earth. He sent other Athenians with few prospects at home to establish colonies overseas, colonies that would become major and secure trading partners with Athens in the years to come. He also negotiated commercial treaties with various cities in the region. During his time in power, the Iliad and the Odyssey took the written form which they still possess today. Plays were produced in growing numbers, and this form of art began to separate itself from religious ritual into a secular entertainment, even if many of the topics in the early days were religious. Nowadays, you see, we remember Athens as a prime example of ancient Greek culture, but prior to Pisistratus, it was really a second-tier city in Greece and in the surrounding area, far behind places like Sparta, Corinth, and Ephesus in terms of the military and the arts and economics and so on. This episode in history is really about the victory of the middle class, of commercial men over the feudal aristocracy. This turning point will enable the Athenians to stand their ground in regional wars, particularly against the Spartans, and it will make possible their glorious defense against the Persian army at Marathon. Now, how do these administrative and legislative changes in government accomplish that, you might ask? Because they gave the common soldiers of Athens a stake in military victory. The number of small landholders increased greatly under Pisistratus because of the division of land, and therefore so did the number of voters, the number of people invested in the government of the city, in its existence, and in its defense. So the Persians would not be fighting slaves when they came to conquer Athens, but instead they were fighting men with land and families behind them to protect, and these they would defend with their very lives. So often, the sons of powerful men only managed to disappoint their father's legacy. And so, the sons of Pisistratus were not able to hold on to his power. 
In the chaos following his death, exiled aristocrats, led by a courageous man named Clesthenes and allied with the Spartans, returned and took over the city and resumed their power. Clesthenes, though, lost the election to the office of chief archon. They held this election after the overthrow of the city. So embittered, Clesthenes turned to the people and led another revolt, this time against the very aristocracy of which he was a part. His revolt succeeded, and he established another dictatorship. Sparta then invaded again, but was repelled by the newly invigorated popular army led by Clesthenes sometime around 510 BC. Now, before his death a few years later, Clesthenes, the dictator, like Pisistratus, made more reforms that would ensure and strengthen the democracy. He abolished the four long-established traditional tribes of Athens, each of which was led by old aristocratic families. And he replaced them with a new political division of the territory into ten new tribes or districts. He also gerrymandered this redistribution to make sure that these districts contained similar numbers of constituents from the old parties, the shore, the plain, and the mountain parties. Thus, he reduced the chance that political blocks based on geography or station in life would form and undermine stability. Each of the ten new tribes now elected a general to the army, and these ten generals would form a council of generals with rotating leadership over military affairs. Each tribe also sent 50 representatives to the new council of 500, which would replace the council of 400 initiated by Solon, but otherwise left the constitution intact. These council members served one year and were chosen not by election, but by a lot system essentially rotation through the entire voter roll, thus ensuring that not only would each eligible citizen get a vote, but he, he would get a turn at managing the government itself. Offices of the state were still limited, though, to citizens above the thetes, or lowest class. But there were now so many landowners, thanks to the redistribution of the land, that this meant that as many as 30,000 adult men were thus eligible to serve. I have made various references to middle class in Athens as well as to freemen. It's time to define these references a little more clearly, perhaps. Of rich and poor, I think we have a sufficient understanding. I mentioned before that the upper classes disdained physical labor. Indeed, hear the words of the famous warrior, general, and member of the Eupatrid class, Xenophon, about whom I will tell much more in a later episode. He speaks here of the mechanical arts, meaning all jobs that require physical labor, such as carpentry, masonry, farming, blacksmithing, and so on. Xenophon says, The base mechanic arts are held in ill repute by civilized people, since they are the ruin of the bodies of all involved in them, who are forced to remain in sitting postures or to crouch whole days confronting a furnace. Physical enervation leads to an enfeebling of the soul, and those employed in these arts have no leisure to devote to the claims of friendship and the state. One can only imagine the horror the ancient Greeks, like Xenophon, would feel if they saw our modern hordes of office workers living and working inside air-conditioned boxes, hunched at their computers, eating processed food, and devoting what little leisure time they have to binge-watching movies and sitcoms. But that is definitely a topic for my eighth and last series on contemporary times. Back to Xenophon's words. It is reasonable to ask at this point, who then is doing all this work that Xenophon speaks of? Work that is certainly fundamental to keeping things going. Society cannot run on a lot of aristocrats sitting around discussing geometry with Euclid and philosophy with Socrates. 
So who did the work? In the countryside, citizens did engage in work along with their families. Remember, only adult male landholders were citizens, not the rest of their families. And they did this along with hired men and laborers. In the city, in Athens, citizens do some work, but it is mostly done by slaves, by freedmen, that is, former slaves, and by a special class of people known as medics, M-E-T-I-C-S, medics. All of these people, slaves, freedmen, and medics, the ones performing the vast majority of the work, are from the voteless class, of course. Now, these were doing most of the work, but most of that middle class that I spoke of, um, the, the shopkeepers, the merchants, the craftsmen, the professionals, such as physicians, artists, tradesmen, these were mostly medics, and medics were free foreigners living in Athens. They were not counted among the citizens, and they could not vote, but they were taxed, and they were expected to provide military service like citizens. They were excluded from official religious public services, forbidden to own land, and not allowed to marry into a citizen's family. They could not even appeal to the courts. So why were they in Athens? Why would they tolerate this segregation and economic and political harassment? Well, the medics enjoyed the economic liberty, the capitalism, if you will, of Athens. Over the years, they worked their way into nearly every, every industry, and the ceramic or pottery trade, it was practically entirely owned by medics. Only in mining, which was supremely valuable to the state due to the silver loads at Lorium, only this was preserved from any medic involvement. Furthermore, these medics had quite a bit of liberty in their personal lives. They enjoyed religious freedom to practice their own spiritual rights, and the state protected them and their wealth again and again from the violence of the radicals, who wanted to take not just land, but wealth in general to be redistributed. But what about the slaves? This is certainly one of the bigger concerns for modern listeners, the question of slavery, especially in ancient Greece. We want to like the Greeks. They provided us with so many fundamentals of our culture, so we struggle to reconcile the good qualities of their society with something as vile as slavery. There are a lot of slaves. During the time period under discussion, there are likely as many as 100,000 in Athens, perhaps more. The number stuns you, especially after I mentioned the maximum expansion of the citizen voter rolls coming out to just 30,000. Athens, in this sense, is not so much different than Sparta in that the citizens are far outnumbered by the slaves. Who are these slaves? Where do they come from? Many of them are prisoners taken in war, and many are simply bought from the widespread slave trade that worked the ocean currents. Sometimes infants were rescued from exposure and raised up to be slaves, a dubious salvation to be sure. Some of them are criminals. Very few are Greek, though. Not in Athens and generally not in Greece overall, the Greeks found appalling the idea of enslaving a fellow Greek. But foreigners, since they bowed to a king anyway, it didn't seem all that inappropriate to enslave them since they were naturally slaves. So the thinking went. Even poor citizens often had a slave or two. They were inexpensive to purchase. You could make money off them by renting them out to work in the mines or in any other service, really. For the most part, they did manual labor, but some of them were employed at clerical tasks in the various industries and in commerce. And they were, as long as they were slaves, uneducated, and they usually are not allowed to bring up children because of the expense of raising a slave child who, for years, would not be able to accomplish any useful task. They have essentially no rights, but they cannot be killed, and they have a sort of security. They are usually not tossed aside with age, but instead are kept on in their late frailty until they die. They find occasions to earn and save money, and sometimes this is enough to purchase their freedom. 
This accounts for that other fraction of non-citizens working among the Athenians, the freedmen, who often continued to simply do the work that they did as slaves, but now independently and in exchange for goods and money. Perhaps these differences, these opportunities, kept the voteless class a little more content than in Sparta, where the citizens declared war on the helots every year. There was another class of people about whom we should be very curious in ancient Athens. They were actually the majority of the population, women. There's a very odd transition with regard to women in Greek history. The Homeric age, the time preceding the classical era of Greece, is alive with women. They may not always be portrayed according to what modern sensibilities would prefer, but they are everywhere in the lines of Homer and Hesiod. And many goddesses nearly reign supreme in these cultural contexts, such as Athena. The Odyssey glibly acknowledges Zeus as the king of the gods, but it is the female goddess Athena who lives and breathes the divine spirit throughout the text. Furthermore, tales involving women, both the mythical and the pseudo-historical, abound throughout the literature of ancient Greece right up until that arrival at the classical age. Then, suddenly, they recede from our vision. They seem to leave the stage almost. In the words of historian Will Durant, In Herodotus, woman is everywhere. In Thucydides, she is nowhere to be seen. Durant refers here to the ancient Greek historians Herodotus and Thucydides. Now, I bow to Durant's excellence. Truly, I recommend his 11-volume History of the World, or his Civilization series, as it's called, to all listeners. But his statement needs to be unraveled a bit. It suggests some kind of linear transition from one writer and time period to the next, as if Herodotus greatly predated Thucydides and reflects an earlier age's cultural nuances. But this isn't really accurate. The two men were technically contemporaries, though Herodotus was a generation older. Herodotus died in 425 BC and Thucydides sometime around 400 BC. However, there is definitely some truth to this idea that Durant describes. Herodotus writes of the time period coming down to the Persian War, which basically initiates the Classical Age. And Thucydides writes of the Peloponnesian War, which began some 60 years later. And in Herodotus's writing, he recounts many historical and pseudo-historical passage, passages in which women appear prominently. And it's true, in Thucydides, women appear very little. But Herodotus is always embarking on a lot of cultural and historical digressions in which there's plenty of opportunity to speak about, about women and women's roles in history, while Thucydides writes almost entirely on military matters, a subject in which even today you are not going to hear nearly as much about women. At the time of this episode's production, in late spring 2023, the Ukraine war is a hot topic in the news, but you will hear very little about women, and mostly about male soldiers and male generals and so on. Still, there is truth in Durant's remark. Women are in the back seat, so to speak, during the classical era, especially in Athens. Durant does not mention that there are many plays of the classical era that actually have important female roles and perspectives. Antigone, a play by Sophocles, is one excellent example in which a woman has a very strong leading role in the action of the drama, but there are no female writers of plays. There are no female leaders in society in this era. And these plays in which women had strong roles anyway were about the Homeric past for the most part, not about current affairs. So culturally, yes, something does happen to women. 
What Durant is really trying to address in his remarks is that is the sudden retirement of women from any sort of public action. Around this time, in Ionian Greek culture, that is, the culture of Athens, the islands, the Greeks living on the coast of Anatolia, and in the various Ionian colonies overseas, men and women seem to adopt Near Eastern roles in society. The women are shut up inside the home after marriage, and it is exclusively men appearing in public, except for female prostitutes. Note that this is not a phenomenon in Doric Greece, among the Spartans, for instance, where women continue to share cultural and even to some extent political power with men. In classical Athens, a married woman lives as a menial laborer in her husband's household. She has few rights, apart from what her husband grants her, is permitted no economic or legal initiative. She does not inherit the property of her husband if he dies, but goes on to be at the mercy of other men. Women may visit their relatives, but they may only participate in public religious festivals if veiled and accompanied by male relatives. In the home, they occupy quarters separate from where visitors are received and do not appear to welcome guests. According to Thucydides, the name of a decent woman, like her person, should be shut up in the house. To be sure, she is honored and revered as a mother. Woman is cherished in the writing of various men as a wife. But in every culture, men love their mothers and many adore their wives. I suppose it is up to each of us to decide if that love is sufficient to redeem the otherwise suffocating suppression of women's opportunities in classical Greece. We have come down to the cusp of that world-changing event, the Persian War. There is much more to speak about with regard to Greek culture and history at this critical juncture, though, before we proceed. The next episode will explore other Greek lands, those outside Boeotia, Athens, and Sparta. We'll look at the many other locations colonized and or migrated to by the various Greek cultures and their subcultures and about a number of topics that are still important to consider, such as the rise of the hoplite warrior, religion, and of course, sex. After we expand our vision in this way to take in the whole Greek fingerprint on the Mediterranean, we will once again focus on a few pinpoints in time and space where Greek hoplites, sailors, and politicians will crowd into battlefields and public forums with Persian soldiers, slaves, and kings and decide the fate of the West and a handful of battles on land and sea. Until then, I thank you for listening to the Western Traditions Podcast.